Amen. So I may be off base in this, but I am a firm believer that as Christians, we have a PR problem. That we do. I'm serious. I don't know who's in charge of the marketing for Christianity in general, but they are doing a bad job. And a lot of it has to do with us. It, it's amazing when you think about what the world views of us. And I'm not saying this as, oh, poor me, okay? This is not a, oh, it's so bad that people think poorly of us. No, because I think they have good reason to think this. And the interesting thing is that when we look at the views that people have of Christianity and of Christians, um, the people who have the worst views, of course, are those who are not Christians. People who would self-identify as non-Christians, people who are non-followers of Christ. And we are known most for what we are against than what we are for. We are seen often as angry, judgmental, sometimes even isolationists. I would say that's probably one of the worst views that there are of us. And then probably the more kind of like, eh, they're just people who believe in a fantasy God. And that's, you know, who they are. Eh, thank you. And some of these views are grounded in stereotypes. And a lot of stereotypes have some basis of truth. Some... Some are grounded in actual personal experience, that someone hurt them in the name of Jesus. That experience they had hurt them, and that hurt came from someone who claimed the name of Jesus, or put the name of Jesus on their actions. And it's, it's heartbreaking, I believe, when this happens, and it is not the way it's supposed to be and yet it is the way it is because you know it's frustrating in one way because those of us who are kind of labeled by this reputation we're like well I didn't do anything to deserve it no but the fact is that we are known by who we associate with and we are known by those who associate with us and it's not fair but I hate to burst your bubble but life is not fair. And the last few years have gotten really ugly, haven't they? And we'll touch more on this in a few weeks when we dig into politics. Oh, I know. It's going to be fun. Um, but in a recent survey of non-Christians, people who say, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't really want anything to do with the Christian faith, this is how they described Christians. Narrow-minded, homophobic, misogynistic, racist, and uptight. Most of those kind of break my heart, though the uptight one does make me giggle a little bit, just because that's a funny word. Um, but I don't think anybody in this room is shocked by those labels, are you? No one here is kind of surprised by this information that came from this survey. But I hope that most of you, actually I hope that all of you who are sitting here who, who claim Jesus are saying, 
but that's not me. And I have a deep prayer that you say, that's not my church. You see, though, this, this is what we have to overcome in this world. Like I said, it's not fair, but life isn't fair. We have to deal with this perception, which is sometimes grounded in just perception and sometimes grounded in real life experience for people. We have to deal with this because we are called to engage in the world, not to isolate from it, not to say, well, that's their problem. Who cares what they think of us? No, we're actually called to participate in building God's reign in this world which is to create more goodness with God. But too often, Christians are caught building kingdoms with moats around them, trying to keep everyone else out and self-protecting themselves. And there's a real problem with that attitude because Jesus, Jesus calls us to love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us. Pray for people who hurt you. Pray for people who harass you. That's not the attitude we usually have, is it? It's really hard to love people who have that view of you, who may think things that aren't true of you, but are very true of others. So that's kind of where we stand, I think, in general our relationship with non-Christians. Now, you may have very different personal relationships in your life. I hope that you do. But what is the design? That's really what we're getting at when we've been walking through this series of defining the relationship. What should be our relationship with non-Christians, with people who don't follow Jesus? You know, what's the design? What's the intention? And a few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve. And we saw that they are created, like all of humanity, to bear the image of God in this world, to resemble God so that others would come to know him. And then we see that that call moves through generations, that it then goes to a man named Abraham, and then to his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and through their family, so that it becomes a call to a tribe and then to a nation to be the image of God in this world, to be, as it said in Isaiah, to be a light drawing others to God. And I think that's a beautiful image, to be light in this world. But so often we get it wrong. And we allow that kind of original design to get corrupted or disrupted. And we hide the light that we are supposed to be. We forget that we have something, that we have someone beautiful to share with this world. We forget that we were blessed, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel. We were blessed to be a blessing. We were blessed, not for our sake, but for the sake of others. That we believe that someone has changed us for the better 
and that we would like to offer that to others. So our relationship with non-Christians, and that's kind of a, it's a hard term to kind of come up with. You know, sometimes we refer to non-Christians as unbelievers, as non-believers, but in reality, they believe something. They probably believe that Jesus isn't real or that God isn't real, but that's still a belief. So I think probably the most appropriate term is non-Christian. Kind of gets at everybody. But our call to non-Christians, what is our relationship to be with non-Christians, is to love them. To love them as God loves them. And we see this design. That we are created to be people who draw people to God. And we see this in particular when we read in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a beautiful teaching on, from Jesus about what it is to be and live in the kingdom of God, which is really the reign of God in our lives, which calls us to love God and love others. That's the core message of God's reign on earth. And that we are invited into that, to bring hope and light to this world. And in particular, we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Allow me to read it for us today. This beautiful image of what we are to be in this world. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Those are some powerful words. And this, when Jesus is saying this, he's saying it to his disciples, people who have chosen to follow him. People have said, I want to learn from you. I want to be like you. I want to seek this kingdom of God you're talking about. And they are good Jewish men. And they know Israel's history. So when Jesus is saying this, they realize that Jesus is talking about what was Israel's purpose, what their whole life as a nation and tradition was to point to. Jesus is really looking at his Jewish disciples and calling them to be what they're supposed to be as Israelites, as followers of God, as God lovers. God had called Israel to be the light and the salt of the earth. But Israel chose to behave like everyone else, with power, politics, violence, division. They weren't being light and salt. And we need to understand that in the ancient world that salt was essential to life because it was a preservative. It kept things from going bad. It was necessary for life. It actually made life better. But Israel, as a nation, had lost its saltiness. It had lost its preserving power. 
And let's remember that the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon Jesus is teaching his disciples, is intended, is designed to make them and us uncomfortable with our lifestyle. If our life doesn't reflect the light of God, we need to reimagine our lives to embrace again our role as image bearers of the living God and participate in God's redemptive plan. That at the same way that God called Israel to be the light of the world, that we too are called to be that light. Because through, God, through Israel, God intended to shine his light brightly into the world's dark corners, not simply to reveal evil, but also to enable people who were bumbling around in that darkness to find their way home to God, home to him, home with God where they are loved and they belong. Now, I use this word home on purpose because I believe that is a wonderful image of God for us. Because home is a place where we should be loved and where we belong, but so many people experience love in a, or home in a different way. Because so many times home doesn't feel safe to people. And that points to a problem and usually to history. See, we know that a house doesn't automatically make a home. Love does. And when there is no love in a home, that makes that home unsafe. And that is the same for people who have experienced Christianity without love. Or they have experienced someone who calls themselves a Christian who acts very unchristlike very unloving. And so for that person, God doesn't feel safe and God definitely doesn't feel good. And that happens when we, who are light bringers, light bearers, we diminish, we hide, we extinguish our light that comes from Christ and we become part of the darkness. And this passage points to another metaphor for us of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be a city on a hill. And if you think about living in the desert, that you wanted to be within the walls of safety within a city, safe from wild animals, safe from maybe enemies. So you would look for that city. And if it's lit up on a hill, you know where to go for safety. It was to be a beacon of hope. That was their, their purpose, their role, was to be a beacon of hope, calling people into safety, into home with God. But instead, it had become just like the world. Now they kept the law. They, they followed the rules. They did what they were supposed to do in some ways. They looked really good on the outside but there was no love in them, no love for others. 
And when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he isn't calling them to abandon the law. He isn't calling them to do away with that. In fact, he's calling them to renew the covenant in their hearts, to allow him to change their hearts so that they serve God from a place of love, not duty. And Jesus will do this himself. He will become the salt of the earth. He will become the light of the world, set on a hilltop, crucified for all the world to see, becoming a beacon of hope and life for everyone, drawing them into worship of God, calling them home to their true home, so with that kind of understanding of what should the relationship look like, how do we do that? How do we become salt and light in this world? How are we to salt and light the world in following Jesus? And it's that exactly. It's by following Jesus. It begins with God, and it begins in our hearts. You see, so often we get it out of order. We think, well, to be a good Christian, I better love people, so I'm just going to try and love them from what I have. We try to love in our own power, to kind of white-knuckle compassion and care for people that we don't know or maybe know and don't like because we do know them. Or try to care for people who have hurt us. And, and the reality is we can do this, right? We can act nice. We can be kind to people that we don't really like so much. We can kind of muscle our way through it, white-knuckle our way through being kind to somebody, kind of grit our teeth, put on our big girl panties, and suck it up, right? But that's exhausting. I have been there, I have tried it, and I have burnt out on it. Because I haven't started from a place of real love. I have exhausted myself and my capacity to offer what meager love I can kind of pull up for somebody. But when I start with God, when I start with how God loves that person, when I start with how God loves me even more so, when I kind of sit with that gratitude and humility of God loves me, and he loves that person as much as he loves me. It changes the game, y'all. See, when we start with God's love, it flows way more easily. When we allow God to first love us, we have a greater capacity to love others. And we have a capacity to love them regardless of who they are and what they've done. So we start with God's love. And that is how we salt the earth and enlighten the world. And, and we do this in particular places. We do this in places where we have influence. And we all have spheres of influence. We may not think that we do. We may not give ourselves that much credit, but we do. We have places where we affect the behavior the perspectives, and the ideas of others in all areas of our lives. 
And we may not always see that influence, but we have it. We have it in our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our social groups. We have it in our families, amongst our friends. We sometimes even have it in the grocery store. Everywhere we show up, we have influence. We show people how to do something by our behavior. Whether it is how to live in our house, and, and I do this all the time with my kids. I show them we are kind to one another. We don't hit each other. We take our plate to the sink and we put it in. You know, we show each other how to live with one another. We show how to work in a company. Do we treat each other with kindness or do we gossip about each other? Do we undermine each other's work? We have influence in our neighborhoods and showing people how to live with one another, how to live with us. We show people how to be our friend by how we are their friend. We all have influence and are influenced by others. None of us are untouched by other people. Because even in someone's absence, we are influenced. Think about the influence that an absent parent has on a child. We all have influence. And we have influence particularly through our actions, sometimes even more so than our words. And like salt that loses its saltiness, we can lose or diminish our saltiness, our influence, based on our actions or our inaction, our refusal to take action. So it matters in how we influence. Light, light is designed to shine. So how will we shine light? Because our influence is not designed to be hidden. And we have an influence that God has given us in our design and in those places where we show up. This passage points to how we are to bring light. And it says it clearly. It's through our good actions, through our good works, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good deeds point to Jesus. Now, let me make this clear. We do not save ourselves or others through our good works. Remember, Jesus is talking to disciples when he says this. He's talking to people who have already engaged in the faith. So these good works, these good deeds are not what save us. That's Jesus' job, by the way. When you try to save somebody, and I mean, you know, don't push, you know, if you refuse to push them out of the way of a car, yes, you're saving them. But you cannot save people. That is Jesus' job. And when you try to do his job, you will do it poorly because I have tried and it doesn't work. So don't do his job, do yours. Yours is to do good deeds that point to Jesus. Because our actions point to God, whether they are good or they are bad. You wonder how Christians get a bad rap? Because our actions point to God. 
But if we are serving people, serving people from a place of love, I think people can experience the goodness of God through us. When we serve others, not lecture them on their sins, I don't know anybody who really appreciates that. When we serve others, our actions give our words credibility. Our actions then make our words trustworthy and invite people to trust God. So keeping that love as other-oriented, as oriented towards God and others, is powerful. We are blessed to bless others. So, when we operate from that first place of love, when we encounter people who do not know Jesus or who have maybe identify as non-Christian, okay, who are the non-Christians in your world? Can you think of them? What is your relationship with them? And then how can you love them well? Now, that original relationship that you have with them adds layers, doesn't it? Because it's different to love someone in your home or your family who doesn't know Jesus as opposed to a vendor maybe that you work with in your company going to be different based on who they are in your life. But love? Love is always kind, patient. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what the love that you extend to anyone should look like. Because the reality is most people need, with most people that we encounter in this world, we need to earn the right to be heard. Right? I don't listen to just anybody. I am most willing to listen to people who will listen to me. And so we need to listen to people. We need to sometimes take an interest in their interest. Because again, love is not self-seeking. Have you ever had a conversation with a nine-year-old about Pokemon? And I know some of you are, are Pokemon lovers. And so that conversation's real easy. It's not so easy for me because I don't get it. I really have a complete lack of interest in Pokemon in general. But I love a lot of kids who do enjoy it. And it doesn't mean that I have to run out and get a collection for myself. It means that I can delight in that child's interest because it delights that child. It matters to me because it matters to them and they matter to God. And so I encourage you when you are engaging in, in relationship with people who are non-Christian is to really listen 
and engage them in conversation about what interests them, to truly love them by listening to them. Because sometimes in those places, we get to learn why they're not a Christian. We may find out very simply no one ever invited them to church. No one ever talked to them about it. We may find out that they think Christians are judgmental jerks, and hopefully you are the exception. Maybe we start to hear why they want nothing to do with God. We may start to hear the story that shaped their view. You may get the opportunity to ask them, tell me, Tell me about this God you want nothing to do with. And then listen. I tell your friends, listen with all of your heart. Listen with a heart to understand, not reply. Because we don't need to defend God. We need to love that person. Because that honestly is the best defense for our faith. When we love them, they experience God through us. And sometimes in those conversations, we hear about the hurt that has been done to them or someone that they love or love. And I want you to know this, that when they start to share that hurt, you are on holy ground. You are in a sacred space. And I want you to listen to their heart. And you may even have a chance to weep with them over what was done to them. They may need to hear from you, and I'm sorry. Not because you did the hurt, but because you represent this person that hurt them. They may need to hear. They may. That's not the Jesus I know. This is not, though, this is not the place for you to list the 50 reasons Jesus is awesome. I know you've been working on that speech. It's not the place to give it. This is the time to show compassion, grace, and love. They don't need to hear why Jesus is the reason or why Jesus is so awesome. They need to experience compassion through you. They need to experience the compassion of God first. Jesus had the most compassion for those hurt by religious folks and the harshest words for religious folks. So recognize when you have the opportunity, when you are on holy ground with people, and to ground yourself in compassion and love, not winning an argument. Now some of us, these relationships get really tricky because they're even more personal, right? Sometimes they're our friends, they're family, and we are in relationship with people that we know either consciously or unconsciously reject God. 
and that complicates things. But it also calls us back to love. Always back to love. Now sometimes we are the only Christ follower in some of our places. And that can be a hard place. That can be somewhat exhausting at times if you are the only person who has these values, especially if that environment feels hostile. But I don't want you to go in there defensive. I don't want you going in there battle ready. I want you to go in there with humility and grace and compassion. And I want you also to know how to tend to yourself. Tend to your spirit. This is an image done by an artist called Scott Erickson, and I love his work. And the image here is of a candle that's light has been somewhat extinguished, and yet there are other candles bringing more light around him. And this, to me, is an image of what it is to renew our light in the light of others. So if you are in a place where you feel kind of isolated because you are the only one who claims the name of Jesus, that you also find places of encouragement for your soul. Places like church, places where you have Christian friendships, so that you can re-enter that other place with a fresh, humble, renewed spirit, strengthened by the light of others. Now, some of our places are filled with Christians. And there may just be a few people who do not identify as a Christian in that space. And I want to caution you on this. Because we can kind of get this tribal group think going on. But love is always other-oriented, and I want you to look for the others always. That I want those places to be safe places for non-Christians that we are to be a light that warms and illuminates, not a torch to burn them down. We are not on a witch hunt, y'all, even if that person likes Wicca. We need to show love everywhere we go, and sometimes that means putting aside our preferences and privileges for the sake of others. Not to deny Jesus, but to show Jesus and our compassion and care and love for others. And if you can't care for that person because they're a person, that's on you. That's your business, and that's what you need to work on. I want to read you some words from someone who is a non-Christian who has had some experiences with Christians that have not been positive. These are their words. Christians look at everyone else as if they've got targets painted on their foreheads. Nobody likes to be hunted down or treated like someone else's projects. We don't need to become more like you just to be acceptable people, worthy of being regarded as people instead of targets. And this is the real owie for me. Love does not seek to create clones of itself. Selfishness does. I think non-Christians get us sometimes better than we get ourselves. They see our failings. 
And it's not the problem that we make mistakes. It's the problem that we don't admit them. It's the problem that we don't actually follow Christ's example and seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation with people. It's the problem that we don't humble ourselves in these settings enough to say, you know what? I was wrong, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that I treated you. I will do better. Teach me to do better. Because they see when we're not loving. We see when we treat them like a target. When we view them as a project, not a person. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anybody's project. Because the reality is this. Everyone is made in the image of God, regardless, regardless of their relationship with God. So friends, let's be sure we're starting from a place of love, a place of dignity for all people, a place of sometimes humility on our behalf, needing to admit again when we're wrong, when we need forgiveness, forging real authentic relationships with people. So that we are able to love generously because we've been loved. That's why we start with God. And let our good works of compassion, kindness, generosity, patience, shine light in all those places of influence that we have so that we are salt and light in this world. Amen.